Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matthew Miller, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Rabbi Dr. Mark Shapiro about his new book, Igrod Malchei Rabbanan, published by Mechon Ali Zayis in 2019. This book, or one might say safer, collects letters from leading Torah scholars to Professor Shapiro from over a 30-year period. Both the subject matter and the individuals in question are vast and fascinating. Professor Shapiro, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. I wonder if, if we can begin the interview and you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I come from, born in Minnesota, grew up in New Jersey, uh, went to Jewish high school, day school, uh, went, studied in Israel, went to Brandeis and Harvard University. And uh, since um, 1996, I've been teaching at the University of Scranton. And how did you come to write this book in specific? Well, already when I was in college, even before that, actually, when I was in Israel, um, I started uh, getting interested in the different rabbis, uh, Gadolim, even people not we wouldn't regard as Gadolim, but uh, significant rabbis. And I started reading um, many books, uh, Shelot and Shuvot in particular, Responsa and uh, other writings. And uh, I uh, sort of imagined myself as part of this uh, literary culture, this culture of letters, because uh, the Responsa literature is uh, just like in Europe, you had a a uh, culture of letters between great philosophers. So too in the rabbinic world, you had this culture of back and forth. And uh, so I sort of, as I said, already as a teenager, imagined myself, maybe I could be part of this republic of letters, if you want to call it this. And I began, it took a long time to, because in those days, everything was by hand, but uh, uh, started sending letters out to various rabbis. And that continued for uh, many years. And that's what led to the book. Oh, the, the book is the responses I received from just, I'm not referring to the academic world. Uh, maybe I could do a whole volume just of academic letters, but this is people in the Torah world. So it deals with Jewish law, some things academic oriented, but uh, mostly Jewish law, some Jewish history uh, from traditional figures, everyone from uh, Satmar to uh, the most right-wing religious Zionist and everything in between. So I always like to begin the interview as we look at the book to start from the very cover page and to start with the title itself. So how did you come up with the title? Well, my name is uh, Melech, unusual name. Malka is a popular name, but Melech, uh, the masculine, is not such a popular name, but that's my name. And uh, the, the Talmud uh, speaks, uh, uses the phrase uh, Mache Rabbanan to refer to uh, rabbis. Uh, well, it says, who are the, the kings? Mache Rabbanan. So the phrase Mache Rabbanan is uh, used to refer to rabbis. There's a book, for example, The Sages of Morocco, what's called Mache Rabbanan. So uh, this is uh, letters of the great rabbis, and it also has my uh, name in the middle there, Melech Malchei, which is a, um, a constant um, thing that the Sfarim often allude to, the, or even have explicitly the name of uh, the author, in this case, uh, on the editor, the recipient. Uh, so I thought it was cute. 
And I know one of the things that you speak about that I've seen you write about on Spartan Blog and other places is about different grammatical issues and errors that people make. So I know you said the name of the book, but I wonder if, if people have or can pronounce a book in, in the incorrect way for the title and to make sure that we that people pronounce it in the right way. So what is the proper way and how might someone oh, mispronounce I think you're referring to the fact that people might say Malkei, but it's actually Malkei. Uh, uh, it's a common uh, mistake. Uh, people say Darkei Shalom or Malkei. No, it's uh, if the plural is Derachim, Malachim. So then the construct is Malkei. I think that's what you had in mind. Exactly. I just want to make sure that we have that down pat so people don't mispronounce it. I appreciate the clarification. So one of the things you you said already is that the recipients of these letters are very vast. Um, So The senders of the letters. The senders of letters, pardon, yes. Um, There are very vast from all sorts of different communities. So how did that come about? How did you make sure... Or why did you want to make sure that it was so vast? And, and how, how did you make sure that that happened? Well, I'm a wide reader, and this began already in college. Fortunately, Brandeis University had a huge uh, collection of Svarim. And therefore, if you look, go to the section dealing with responsa, you'd have uh, from rabbis right next to each other. You could have a religious Zionist rabbi next to a Satma rabbi, next to a Litvisha rabbi. And I always assume that in Torah study, all these disputes, these political disputes, should be uh, put aside. Yes, you can debate them, and uh, these are important disputes, but uh, there should be a place where these are set aside, and Torah scholars can all relate to each other uh, based on uh, the more important things, namely how to understand uh, texts. So uh, by me writing to all these people, even people whose communities by no stretch of the imagination would I have anything to do with, I think I was uh, affirming this idea that when we discuss Torah matters, we can rise above these uh, these political disputes. And I have to say that uh, in all the discussions I've, well, maybe with one or two exceptions, I never had a situation where someone's attitude was, well, you're not from my community or you have different views and therefore I don't want to uh, uh, communicate with you. I don't want to have a scholarly interaction. On the contrary, I think I succeeded in showing that uh, in Torah matters, we can rise above these disputes and uh, focus on the matters at hand. And that's, I think, uh, one of the achievements of the book. I don't know of any other Safer where in one Safer you have people from so many ideologically, really at camps at odds with one another. But uh, when it comes to Torah matters, I think we, we see clearly that uh, they can discuss the same issues without being brought down by uh, petty disputes and political matters. So I, I said earlier that I referred to the recipients of the letters. And, and, and you said quite correctly that these are, in fact, the senders of the letters. But I know that also you sent letters to them first, and it was a correspondence of some sorts. So how did you decide what you'd include in the book in regards to your own letters, the correspondence as a whole? How did you come about doing the actual publishing of the letters? Well, this, this began before computers, really. And um... Uh, you just take a piece of paper and write something and send it. I didn't think uh, enough to uh, make copies of all of my letters. I didn't regard my letters as significant. I only regarded as what I was going to receive from them. Now, that was a mistake, and uh, it, uh, I, I should have kept my letters, and therefore I didn't include them. Uh, in the more recent years, I do have some of the, my letters, and I included the ones where from the – when. 
really one was a correspondence back and forth. And, and most of the times from the letter that I received, you could see the question. So my uh, question wouldn't add anything to it. But in a few cases where I think I have something to contribute and uh, it's a back and forth, I included uh, my letter. So that explains uh, the choice there. And you've mentioned a little bit about the ways in which letters were, were sent and, and the different types of communication and technology that was used. I wonder if you can elaborate a little bit on that. So what were these letters physically sent? In some cases, were they sent via email? Were they sent directly? Were they sent via secretary? I think that could be interesting to unpack. Yeah. Well, again, this began before there was email. The letters were all sent by hand my hand. And um, uh, at times I would even send postcards. Uh, Later, um, it was, and how do you know where to send it to? Because often the big rabbis, uh, the ones who publish the books, they have their name and their address on the inside cover. Well, you know the name, they have their address. Later, uh, faxes uh, became uh, popular. So there were times that uh, some of these uh, letters were sent by fax and received by fax. None of the letters in the book were actually by email. Uh, That was, um, people don't send letters uh, of significance, it seems, uh, through email. So even though we've had email for a long time, I made sure that uh, anytime I sent to a big rabbi, I sent it um, snail mail. And that's how I uh, received it back, either by mail or uh, by fax. It's going to be interesting because I'll just make a note. You mentioned email. Uh, I I mean, you know, I've written a lot uh, in which I use archives. My first book, on Rechlech of Weinberg, to a large extent, is based on private correspondence. In the the academic world, the study of history, I don't think they've come to terms yet with something It's going to be a problem in the future that now all the correspondence is going on through emails. So unless you're dealing with someone like the president uh, where uh, their emails have to be saved or recorded, um, we don't have collections of letters like we used to have because uh, it's on someone's computer and usually that computer will be thrown out. So it's going to be very hard in a hundred years to write the biography of, of Plony of X because we're not going to have a record of published of uh, written correspondence. And I'm not sure how future historians are going to deal with that. Well, in fact, can... I mean, just add also one more thing that I, um, cognizant of this, any important email I get, I actually print it out and I keep it in a file. So uh, one day, uh, future historians, uh, if they choose to, not because of what I wrote, but because of the people who sent it to me, I think they'll find it uh, of interest. That makes sense. That's great. And in regards to the people you're corresponding to, so were you connecting directly with them or did you connect and send uh, correspondences to different secretaries or did it depend based on the person or even based on It is always with them with the exception of uh, one of the chief rabbis of Israel that it was uh, through a secretary but otherwise it was always with them and uh, that's why uh, some of the um, the major major figures uh, the book has uh, major figures top level what we call Godolwin and also second level if you want to call it that uh, but a number of the top-level Godolim, uh, I never got replies, and for the simple reason that they're receiving numerous letters, and uh, uh, I don't even know if the letters that I sent ever even were seen by them because they have uh, different secretaries, and uh, so um, that explains uh, why I guess uh, they're not more of what you might say as uh, the top-level uh, 
uh, Gadolim, although there are a significant number of uh, people anyone would regard, I think, as top level, but it was always directly through them. And in regards to the actual language, so I want to get into this from a few different angles, but you mentioned before at the beginning that you'd always enjoyed looking at and reading responsive literature. And responsive literature, for the most part throughout history, has been written in Hebrew, um, but in a special type of, of Hebrew in some cases, uh, flowery with different rabbinic terms and, and, and different rabbinic flourishes. So how did you learn? How did you pick up? How did you develop that type of Hebrew and use it in your lives? Uh, just by reading. I mean, from age 17, pretty much, I started reading these texts. So I was able, I'm not going to say I'm a master stylist, uh, but I was able to develop uh, it enough that uh, I could at least aspire to be part of this, uh, as I said, this uh, Republic of Letters. And I was able to uh, engage it, even if I don't have the halachic knowledge to be on a par with these uh, great rabbis, at least... Uh, in a uh, Hebraic sense, I can uh, I can formulate my question in an intelligent way. And the books, the letters themselves in the book, are all printed in Hebrew, with the exception of a letter from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which is in English. So I wonder if you can give us a little bit of a taste of what that letter is, why that letter in the book is only one in English, and also just more broadly, the language of correspondence. Was it indeed all in Hebrew, or were there other languages involved? The language of correspondence was uh, almost entirely in Hebrew, both I sent and uh, I received. The one exception is uh, the Lubavitch Rebbe's letter and also um, uh, something from Norman Lamb. And all the letters I sent uh, were in Hebrew with uh, the exception of having sent to Norman Lamb and uh, some of the letters to Herschel Schechter. Somewhere in English, uh, somewhere in Hebrew. Everything else is in Hebrew. Now, the letter from the Lubavitcher Rebbe is the only one that's not in response to a um, a letter from me, and it's actually not um, directed to me. It's directed to my father. There's a letter to me as well, but I thought it's important to include because it was to my family. And uh, when I was uh, bar mitzvah, before I was bar mitzvah, I had yechidos, as they say, with the Rebbe. It was very unusual at that time uh, to have Yechidus with the Rebbe. This is after his heart attack, and but uh, I had a little protexia, so I, I got in. And he wrote a, a very interesting letter to my father, who's a historian, speaking about uh, the value of history and what we see from history. And, and really, the Rebbe explains that that's the greatest proof for uh us as Jews, um, and that we're more, we have an advantage over prior generations because we see how through all these thousands of years, other peoples, other nations, our oppressors are gone and we're still here. And he says, this is something that a historian can appreciate. So I very, um, attached to that letter being a historian myself and, uh, comes from the Rebbe. In fact, it has handwritten annotations on the side from the Rebbe. So, uh, but again, technically, that is not a letter to me. It's a letter to my father. The letter to me is a very small letter of just a few lines, which doesn't say anything significant. So the book itself has many, many letters. Um, so covering the gamut from all sorts of, of different topics, from halachic topics to topics related to politics and, and more. But I'm sure there are other le- letters that you received during that time period, as well as after the book was published. So how much was left on the cutting room floor? Is there another book that can be, that is being written? What, what do we have beyond the book? Well, I, uh, what was left are letters that didn't really say anything uh, really insignificant or from individuals um, 
that uh, are not well known or not significant. I only included uh, rabbis uh, of some renown, of importance. I've also, if I read a book by just a general author and uh, I send a letter, which I've done on numerous occasions with a question, I didn't see this as uh, important to include it. There, I have to also say that there's a couple letters that uh, I couldn't find. And after the book was published, I actually located them. So if there's a volume two, they will be included. But I wanted to keep it uh, figures of a certain renown, uh, substantive, and also I didn't want to uh, deal with figures who are not part of traditional rabbinic culture. With one exception, a letter from Professor Levinger, I didn't include letters from academics. That could be a separate book. I didn't include letters from rabbis who are um, uh, controversial, uh, who might be regarded as maybe some would say maybe not even on the orthodox spectrum, because I've always uh, corresponded with rabbis and uh, scholars. Uh, didn't matter to me what uh, ideological camp they're in. But this, I wanted to be a work of traditional Torah literature. And that also explains the look of the book. Uh, it's where it was published and uh, and how it looks. It looks like a safer because it is a safer. So I wanted to get into that safer aspect. So in Jewish English, coming from Yiddish, the term safer means literally book in Hebrew, but it's taken on a meaning of a book of religious significance. And so if we look at the different sections, I think that's borne out with the, the section titles and, and the way that it's broken down. So the first four sections are the four sections of the Shulchan Ruch, the book of the great work of Jewish learning and, and, and legal code. And so, and then there's other sections as well, as I said, about, about politics, about authors and books, etc. So I wonder, there could have been, there can be other ways that, that, that books, that this book could have been broken down. Were, were there other ways that, that you thought maybe to organize it, or, or did this come to you right away and you decided? To no, go? because uh, many of the letters deal with halacha. So, uh, in theory, you could have just had a book with the sections of halacha. But I wanted this to be a record, as you mentioned at the beginning of the, the years of my correspondence, and a good portion of it dealt with halachic matters. I've been interested in halacha. I've corresponded with uh, some of the greatest rabbis and halachic issues, and I wanted there to be a record of this. On the other hand, I also correspond with rather, big rabbis on matters dealing with what we call hashkafa. Ideas, books, farim. That's uh, something perhaps a little unique in the book is the section about dealing with with uh, sfarim, with uh, bibliographical issues, biograph biographies of great rabbis. This is something that also is of interest uh, to many. Usually, they're not included in one book. Usually, a halachic book will just be halacha, and then these are separate. But I uh, I wanted it to be a record of. Uh, is much not just of the content, but of my involvement in soliciting this uh, information, because I feel I've added important information to the uh, the Jewish library. There's material in this book, which is not found anywhere else, from uh, great figures in all aspects of uh, Jewish learning. I want to go back what we've spoken about a couple of times already about response to literature that you had reading since you were young and that you developed a love for it and, and in some ways that brought you to write the book along with other reasons as well and so your classic book of response to literature is a rabbi it's a rabbi Moshe, Moshe, Moshe Feinstein whoever it is and it's a collection of of their writing so questions they re re received and the answers that they've given to the people who are asking the questions and so your book of course is, is connected to this literature but it's the other side of the coin or, or not the other side of the coin but it's a collection of answers to one person from multiple rabbis. So 
how is this unique? So I think you've alluded to it a bit before, but how is this unique? Is it unique? And, and how does it relate to the broader response literature? It's pretty unique. There's uh, there's a couple people in Israel recent years. Uh, one is name is Rugamlio Rabinowitz, and then there's a uh, Rabbi Mordechai Zion who have also sent out questions to different uh, rabbis, and they'll uh, include the different answers. Um, They've received, so it's not entirely unique. Although those they just deal with halachic matters, I deal with other issues as well. And they're they really take one question and they sent it to ten or fifteen different rabbis, and they include all the answers, which is very helpful to see the different responses to one question. My uh, book, you have a little of that that, but mostly it's just. Um, there's a reason why I sent to Rabbi X and Rabbi Y. It's because uh, things I was reading usually from them. So I wanted to probe that further. Or I think that they'd be suitable people uh, uh, to answer the particular question. Just to dig into that a little bit about asking one question to multiple rabbis. So at least a couple of times in your book, I know that you, you do so and you ask one question. You, you're looking for, I don't know, you're getting different answers um, based on that one question. So how did you decide in those cases that you wanted to ask that question to multiple people, to those specific multiple people? And then the other side of that question is, how do they react to that, that you're asking the same question to the multiple people? Um, I can say that uh, they didn't react because uh, they didn't know. I, uh, I, there was a couple issues that uh, I was curious to get the opinions. Of, for instance, um, one of them is girls uh, uh, speaking um, during a bat mitzvah a celebration in Shul. So that I was curious to see uh, what a number of different rabbis would say about the issues of uh, Shabbos uh, candles. Now, like um, if you already have a light on, um, what's the rationale to make the bracha on the candles if you have the light? So some of these questions which I hadn't seen discussed, I sent out to a number of rabbis. But for the most part, we don't have that. For the most part, uh, the questions are designed for the particular rabbi. And in many cases, these were what we call halacha l'maaseh. I wanted to know uh, actual halachic uh, ruling, what, what should be done uh, in this case. And can you, can you give any examples for that of specific questions that you had in, within a specific context and, and how that came about with the correspondence? Well, so for instance, I worked as the Orthodox advisor at uh, Brandeis University uh, for a number of years. So we had questions that came up. And one of the people I asked in those days was Rabbi, the late Rabbi Huder Hankin. And there was a reason I asked him, because he is someone who comes from America, had been to a modern Orthodox uh, high school, understood perfectly the uh, the, the situation of a uh, kids on a college campus. So uh, he's someone that was suitable to ask. And uh, uh, that's why I turned to him in those matters. Uh, there's other questions that uh, I, I turned to Herschel Schechter, who um, I've asked questions over the years. Uh, so uh, really, it depended. And many of the questions, they were not practical. Halacha. They were more discussions of the halacha. I saw something in a book, and I was curious to explore it further. So um, and I think the, the the writer, the author, understood that. I was, it's not usual that you get out of the blue a letter, someone asking you a halachic question. You don't have a, a connection to the person. I think they understood that uh, rather than asking for a psak halacha to bind me as, as if he was my posseik, rather I just want to explore this rabbi's understanding of the law and see his opinion. That makes a lot of sense. And so going back a little bit to the responsive literature side of things, um, so in what cases were there cases 
in which the question that you were asking and then the answer which was given was in fact included in and incorporated in works of responsa? Well, uh, many of them, of the, uh, the the letters, there's probably about 20 or so, uh, maybe even a little more, where I note that this is published in the writings of the author. See, remember, I was I found out who these authors were from their books, and I, I wrote to them at their, their addresses. So if they had written Svarim, and that's what they do, they write responsa, so the, the answers to me then became uh, another responsum. So... Uh, I soon learned that uh, when they come out with their next volume to make sure to get it, because odds are that uh, I would be included. And that's, that happened again and again. That's how uh, my name is included in many volumes of responsa because the same letters that are in this book were earlier printed in, um, in their writings. On the other hand, there were times when for a variety of reasons, they did not include them. So for instance, uh, Rabbi Yehuda Herzl Henkin in one of his letters deals with a woman saying Kiddush for a college group. And, uh, he wrote a small letter to me. And then the letter I included was I had asked, I had mentioned to the Harvard Hill rabbi, uh, Orthodox rabbi, the answer I was given. And he then wrote, and then he got a longer letter and I included it. And Rabbi Henkin told me that he didn't include it in his own volume of responsa. He said for his own personal reasons, which was that he was worried it was maybe a little radical. He'd be attacked. Although he told me that I could publish it. So, uh, there was, uh, there was a few cases like that where the actual authors uh, did not choose themselves to include the letters to me uh, that, I wrote to, that they wrote to me in their responsa for a variety of reasons. And then looking on the other side of your letters that you decided to include in the book um, from the different rabbis and, um, and rabbinic scholars, what was the process like to, to publish them? So were these things that you needed to, wanted to ask permission? Did you just publish them because you felt like you, you could? How did that work exactly? Okay. It's a good question. Um, in um, in the Western world, we assume, and this is the law, that um, if I send a letter to someone, uh, the actual letter, the physical letter, belongs to the person who received it. But uh, you're not allowed to publish something um, without the permission. And you can get sued for that. Um, in the Jewish world, uh, although I don't know, you'd have to show damages, but you're still not uh, allowed to. Um, in the Jewish world, in the rabbinic world, the assumption is that when a rabbi sends a letter, this is Torah, and uh, if he doesn't say, keep this to yourself, the assumption is that this is for anyone to see uh, and uh, people will publish these letters all the time. And there's n- no objection to that because the assumption is that a psak halacha or any letter for that matter uh, from a great figure is uh, is not a private letter. It's uh, putting forth the Torah authority's opinion. The only people I asked, because there were some letters where personal things were said and maybe harsh things were said that they did not want, I asked Rav Herschel Schechter and I asked Rav Meir Mazuz, and both of them told me, Rav Herschel Schechter told me I could publish them, not a problem. And Ramir Mazuz told me I could publish them as long as I wasn't including any um, any radical rabbis in the book. That is, any left-wing uh, Orthodox rabbis. He didn't want to be included together with any of those. And I told him I'm not. And then he said, it's fine. I could publish uh, what, I said, what he sent to me. We've spoken about the ways that this intersected with your role or title as, as a rabbi, as someone who is making and thinking about your own religious decisions and decision-making. What about the other side of, of, of you, the, the scholar, the academic? So 
how has the, the, the this work or the letters themselves, how have they been incorporated into your scholarship and been helpful for the scholarly work that yeah. you've done? I can say, by the way, the letters, if you uh, you search now, notes are Chachla, and people who sent it to me, they've already begun to be quoted uh, uh, by um, certain figures. In fact, uh, there's a, a polemic against one of the letters by a rabbi in Israel in his uh, uh, volume of Chuvot. It's uh, against something uh, that Reverend Fryan Greenblatt writes. Uh, I have referred to them on a number of occasions because uh, they relate to things that I'm writing about. And uh, but really, this is separate from my writing. It's uh, it's a separate part of my personality at the same time that I'm doing my scholarship, which is uh, the majority of what I do. As we say in rabbinic Hebrew, of minyan ubinyan, uh, of what I do is uh, academic scholarship, but I have this as side of me. And um, so uh, for the, the, the time I spent on that side of me over these last years, that's this. And really, the two need not meet uh, they're really not connected. Uh, I think maybe I refer one time in the whole volume to an academic piece I wrote. Uh, it's really a separate, uh, separate part of my personality, if I can put it that way. And are, are there other sparium, other other works of, of Jewish scholarship that you're, that you're currently working on beyond the academic work that you do? Uh, well, I do hope. I want to finish. I have a book on Rav Cook. I want to finish. I uh, I've published many um, Torah letters from manuscript. And I think I would put together a another volume just like this one with all the great rabbis that I published, not addressed to me though, but important manuscripts that I published. And I also have hundreds of letters uh, that I uh, haven't published, but I have in my archives. I published some in English. Uh, I recently published letters of Soloveitchik, but I have uh, I have many hundreds of letters of great rabbis, and I can have a very nice collection. Um, of just letters of great rabbis. I've also uh, published a number of articles based on these letters in Hebrew. That is, I'd give an introduction of 10 or 20 pages, and then I publish the letter. And uh, so I explain the importance of the letter and uh, and put it into context. So I, it could be uh, that I will do that as well as a, a future project. And I think, again, that'll be something not just for the world of scholarship, but for what we call the Torah world. That's great. I look forward to that. So we've spoken a lot around the book. We've covered and, and looked at a couple of the, the different questions in, in brief, but is there anything else that I haven't asked, anything that you want to dig into to make sure that we can get that covered as well? Um, nothing uh, really uh, jumps out. Uh, um, nothing jumps out really um, other than the fact that, as I said, it's a it's a very wide-ranging collection. Uh dealing with individuals and um, matters of books and halacha, even philosophical matters. I have letters here from Rabbi um, Kafich and Rabbi Shelat dealing with uh, the notion, is there a, a, a command to believe in God or is the command to know, to understand God? Uh, um, uh, all sorts of matters that you wouldn't expect to find in, uh, in such a book. So, um, I can only encourage people who are interested in uh, Jewish history, Jewish scholarship, who know Hebrew, to uh, check it out. Maybe you'll find things of interest. As I say as well, we were speaking at the beginning, before the interview, that Professor Shapiro has a 50-plus part series on YouTube from Tor in Motion, where he talks about the book, goes through a number of most, if not all of, most many of the different parts and, and, and letters he received, gives some more detail and background about the people and the letters, which is Really fascinating and a helpful supplement to the book itself, which I enjoyed as well. All right. Thank you so much. Really, really appreciate your time.
Thank you very much. We've been talking to Professor Mark Shapiro, author of Yigrod Melchei Rabbanan, published by Mechon Ali Zayas in 2019. Happy reading, my friends.